0: Satellite Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay here to talk to you today about the subject of worship again. So if you've listened to the first couple of episodes, I wanted to take a second and thank you. And hopefully this is something that's blessing people. I hope that's kind of the goal. And um, just to provide an easier way to interact, this podcast actually has its own text line. So the number for the podcast is 762-499-4162. And I know a few of you that know me personally have my own personal phone number, but for those of you that don't, the number again is 762 499 4162. So last week we talked about giving God our best in worship and what that looks like and what that means and being living sacrifices. And this week I wanted to examine kind of the other side of that, which is what happens when we don't bring God our best in worship? What happens when we don't give an acceptable sacrifice? So going back to the book that I mentioned last week, Worship, Believers Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby and Ron Owens, they talk about the Hebrew word for worship which first appears in the book of Genesis. The word is shakah, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and in numerous other places in scripture, that word is used to refer to the physical act of kneeling or bowing in reverence. And a lot of times it's used in conjunction with other words that describe worship that involved kneeling or bowing. In Genesis 22, which is the chapter where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, that word is translated as worship as Abraham tells the young men he's traveling with that he is about to go Shakah with his son Isaac. And the authors point out that the use of this term indicates as much about the state of the heart as it actually does the physical position of the body. Because you know the entire idea behind kneeling and prostrating yourselves, as we see people do a lot of times in the Old Testament, in the presence of God, is to have their physical position match the posture of their heart. And I think we can all agree that worship requires a prostrated heart, a state of the heart which results from a proper view of God. And this is one of the things they hammered at a lot in the book, was having a proper view of God. They even went as far as to say that the measure in which we know God is the measure in which we will be able to worship him. Which I thought was a very interesting statement. Not really sure I agree with that because it makes it sound as if head knowledge of God is the key instrument in worship more so even than the posture of the heart. And so, while I think I understand what the author is trying to say, it seems to create a pretty dogmatic approach to worship to say that truth, which is one of the things that we're commanded to do, worship in spirit and truth, is a limiting factor and your ability to worship. That if you don't know enough truth, essentially you can't worship God on a deep enough level. And I find that approach a little problematic. But either way, the point is, this really got me thinking and started really this cascaded thoughts that I had to sit down and organize into a flowchart. And really the idea was, what are the elements that contribute to proper worship? So I came up with the little, like I said, this little flowchart. And when I'm done describing this, if you text me the word worship, at that text line that I said. I will send you a picture of this diagram if you would like to see it. It just is something that we can have a good discussion over. But I basically had these four prongs and at the very, very top of the diagram is the word worship and these four elements that contribute or factors or facets that are part of the worship process. So in the bottom right corner of my diagram, I have proper view of God. And a proper view of God, so a proper view of God in and of itself can lead directly to worship. It also leads to love of God because As you understand who God is, what he has done for us, and how much he loves us, it should create love for God within someone's heart. The other thing a proper view of God will do is lead to obedience. If you understand who God is and what he is asking of you and why he is asking it of you, you're going to want to obey. And then I have a fourth arrow going off to proper state of the heart. Because a proper view of God will lead to a proper state of the heart where you understand who you are in relationship to God and who He is in relationship to everything else. So again, in the bottom right hand corner, I have proper view of God with four arrows going off to these other ones. Proper view of God leads to obedience, it leads to a proper heart state, and it can also lead to increased and appropriate love for God, it also can lead you directly to worship in and of itself. So that's in this one corner. And the corner next to it is the word love. Proper view of God leads to love of God. It also leads to a proper heart state. It leads directly to worship and also leads to obedience because Jesus tells us in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you obey my commands. Then right above love, I have the one I just said, a proper heart state, which can lead directly to worship itself and which will also lead to obedience because of the things we just discussed. And then on the right side, and this looks almost like a, and if you're trying to picture this visually, it looks like a pentagon. So worship's at the top, and each one of these elements is on the sides, but a proper heart state will lead to obedience because if you understand again, because of the reasons we just said, and obedience we know is part of worship. So, so that's a little flow chart I created in my own head to try to organize these elements and to try to help me paint a better picture of what worship really is. But anyways, I wrote all this down, and I got to this statement that really, really stuck with me. And it was this. If you are not ready to obey God, you are not ready to worship. That's that's true, isn't it? I mean, if you're not willing to obey God, you're not acting according to who he is, the Lord of all things, the author of creation, the master of the universe. If the boss tells you to do something and you don't, That would be an indication that you don't have a proper view of the boss and that your heart is not in a proper state. And on an even simpler level than that, Jesus says, point blank, if you love me, you will obey what I command, even if you don't understand what I command, even if you don't agree with what I command. But if you love me and your heart is in the proper state and you have a proper view of God, you will obey. So what happens when we don't obey what God's commanded in regards to worship? What happens when the worship is improper? Well, in several instances in the Old Testament, God brought swift, radical, and harsh, harsh judgment. And so there's just a few examples I want to discuss and kind of see what we can take away from them. And what I really want to get out of this is to figure out when God judged people for improper worship, which one of these four elements was out of sorts. So the first example I have is Cain. Cain. in Genesis 4 brings a grain offering before God that the Lord rejects. It doesn't specifically say why his offering is rejected but the indication seems to be that his brother Abel brought the best parts of the best animals as sacrifices and Cain just brought a part of his harvest. So it seems implied that he did not bring his best for God because it specifically states that Abel did bring his best. And it seems that the issue stems from irreverence towards God. He held back from God. If you knew who it was that you were offering to, would you bring anything less than the absolute best that you have? This is what we talked about last week with Mary, giving Jesus her alabaster jar of perfume. She felt no need to hold anything back because she understood who she was worshiping. So Cain's gift did not show proper appreciation for who God was and the fact that God was a source of everything he had. And truthfully, he's just giving back to God what's already his. So I would say that Cain definitely did not have a proper view of God that led to obedience. Then you have in Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. And that one is definitely a case of the people of Israel having an improper view of God. They literally created a false image of God to worship because they wanted a God they could physically see like the idols of Egypt. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's there with God for, we're told, 40 days. It's been a while, and the people decide that they weren't satisfied with God as he had revealed himself to them to this point. You know, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, physical manifestations of God, elaborate, ridiculous miracles. Well, that wasn't enough. And so they decided to create an idol and sacrifice to him as if he was God. Because what they say in verse five is tomorrow we shall have a feast unto Yahweh. Now that is the tetragrammaton. That is the proper name of God. They pretended that the calf they made was God. They didn't call him Anubis or Ra. They called him Yahweh saying, no, 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 this is that God. And what the Israelites since they did is what many of us do. They made God in their own image. So this improper view of God led to disobedience, making a graven image, and improper worship. And the penalty was, again, extremely severe. I believe 3,000 of them struck dead. Then you had an example from Leviticus 9 with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. And there is a command given in Exodus 30, verse 9, that no priest should offer unauthorized incense on the altar of the Lord. Why? I don't know. But I do know that Aaron's two sons offered sacrifices to the Lord in a profane manner. The word used in a lot of translations is that they offered strange fire. Basically, they filled their censers with incense, went before the altar of the Lord, and started doing an incense offering that he did not request or ask for, which was a violation of the worship laws he had given them. and. One of the commentaries said that they violated the requirements for reverence, meaning they weren't consecrated and they had not been commanded by God, so that's why they were burned up. And God says, in I think it's verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10, that they did not treat him as holy. But we do know is that they worshiped in a way that was outside of the prescribed methods of worship and the pattern of worship that God gave them, and it cost them their lives. And then the final example comes from 1 Samuel 15, where Saul defeats the Amalekites, the Lord gives the Amalekites over into Saul's hands, and he is told to utterly destroy everything. Kill the people, kill the king, kill the animals, destroy everything. And instead, he saves some of the spoils from defeating the Amalekites. When Samuel shows up and he says, hey, what are you doing? Saul's response is, I wanted to say this stuff to offer to God as a sacrifice. In other words, I know I was told to do A, but I disobeyed out of my desire to worship God. And this goes back to what we just said a few minutes ago. You can't disobey God and worship God. So the fact that Saul disobeyed God showed that he did not have a proper reverence for what God commanded. And who God was. And in the case of Saul, the result was God's rejection of him as king. And I think I said that was the last one, but I actually had one more. The story of Uzzah. And this one is one that's really difficult for me. Uzzah was helping transport the ark in 2 Samuel 6. The ark was on a cart or a wagon. It was supposed to be transported with poles, but it was on this wagon as they brought it back into the kingdom of Israel in the Story that I told you last week about David dancing until his clothes fell off. And as the ark starts to fall off the wagon, Uzzah reaches his hands out and touches it, and he's struck dead by the Lord because there was a command that you do not touch the ark of the covenant. One of the reasons being, between the wings of the cherubs, those angels that sit on top of the ark, there was a flame called the Shekinah glory where God literally manifested a piece of his presence that stayed there. And so... Uzzah was struck down because even though Uzzah did love God, he didn't obey God's command for how to approach His presence. And I struggle with that because it seems so harsh. Because you know what Uzzah's heart, his desire was to keep the ark from being defiled and falling. But because God said this is how you approach My presence, and you have violated that, He struck him down. And I struggle with that story. I do. But. Kind of the conclusion here is that God gives His clear commands in the Old Testament for how to approach Him and how to worship Him and punishes His followers when they don't abide by those commands. But what about in the New Covenant? What are the commands that were given for worship in the New Covenant? Very clearly, we are told to worship in spirit and in truth. And what does that mean? I mean, I honestly think this means several things. One is that our worship is motivated by, and spurred on by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, which dwells inside of every recreated, reborn believer. I do believe that's part of it. I also believe it means that our worship comes from a place in our heart of adoration, love, and reverence. And I think those are all motivating factors that bring that worship up out of our own spirit. And then the idea of truth to me is fairly straightforward. It means that we worship God according to what's true about his character, and according to what he has said in his word or revealed very clearly to be true to us that is in line with his word so we're, we're given this command to worship in spirit and truth and there's only one example we can find in the new testament where someone is punished per se for improper worship that's the story of ananias and Savior in acts 6. so very well known story but And and Sapphira have a tract of land. They sell it. They bring the money to the church. They say they sold the land for a larger amount than what they actually did. And so what they brought to the church wasn't the entire portion from the sale, but a part of it. And in separate incidents, God strikes them both dead. And when I think about this being a case of improper worship, when I think about this, what I mean is that we know that giving is a form of worship. It is. I mean, that's one of the things we just talked about is how last week when... Mary breaks that jar of expensive perfume over Jesus, she she is giving a gift that is an expression of her heart towards God. And so giving is an expression of, as we said earlier, when we talked about sacrifices, our reverence towards God, our respect towards God, our understanding of who he is and our love towards God to aid in his ministry and our love towards his body, the church. So we definitely do believe that giving is an act of worship. And in this case, Ananias and Sapphira gave in neither spirit nor truth. Their giving was not motivated out of a deep admiration or love for God. It was motivated by a desire to look good in front of man. And they did not give according to the truth. They lied about what they were giving and they were judged for it. So as we kind of wrap up this week, I'm leaving a question in the air that I don't know that I can actually answer, but Do we risk God's wrath if we do not worship in the proper way? (laughs) I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not even sure if God's wrath, and I'm using air quotes here, is the right term. But do we risk God's discipline when we do not worship in the proper way? Was the case of Ananias and Sapphira a case where God was just trying to make a point for the infant church saying, Hey, sin is a big deal and sin within the body will not be tolerated. And God made a clear, strict judgment to put his fear into people saying these are things that we as a set apart holy people will not do. Or is this an indication of what God thinks about improper worship that worshiping without spirit and without truth are so detrimental to the body that they have to be cut out? I don't know. It also makes me thankful for living in a covenant where we don't have to go through ritual purification and all kinds of other rites to worship God. And that is something to really be thankful for that in the way God has revealed himself to us in this new covenant, we don't have to go through all kinds of hoops to access him and worship and to be intimate with him and to enter into his presence. I don't know that's something we appreciate enough, but I want to leave with this final question for you to chew on. What if the punishment for all irreverent worship was immediate death? What if that's how it went down? How would that change the way we view worship? Now, in some ways, it'd probably create a lot of fear and legalism, but I ask that question in the sense of, take time to evaluate your worship. Like, is your worship coming from your spirit, from the deep parts of your heart? Is it steeped in the truth of who God is? And if it's not, what do we do to get it there? So, I know that's a lot. I know that's probably a little bit difficult to digest, but I am someone that is comfortable asking questions and leaving them out there in the air to hang. So I'm sure y'all have lots of thoughts. Please make sure to send it to me on the text line, 762-499-4162. And I look forward to hearing what y'all have to say. This has been David Bethay for Satellite Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.